Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. John's first epistle. We know that John wrote the Gospel of John as well, so it's not the first of his writings in our in our Bible, but uh, the first of his epistles. And go to the fifth chapter of First John, First John five, and um, we're going to just read a few verses this morning. And this is uh, this is a truth that John repeats throughout all of his writings over and over again. And in fact, the New Testament is full of uh, statements just like this one that John is going to make. But we'll, we'll look at this one and then we'll uh, be moving around a little bit as we explore what it means to confess Christ alone. I want you to stand with me, please. And we'll read from the Word of God together. First John 5. We're going to pick up at verse 10 and just read a few verses down. So, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let us Go to the Lord in prayer, but before we do, let us remind ourselves that the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we look at his word once again. Thank you. God, we marvel at your creation, Lord. I, even seeing the northern lights and all that you've made, and Lord, we look at the complexities of the human body, and Lord, how even after thousands of years of research, we're just beginning to understand uh, exactly how complex uh, you've made us, Lord. And Lord, we remember that all of this was brought into existence by your word. Lord, that you didn't take from some other eternal substance, Lord, but you spoke, and from your fullness, from your power, you created all things. And so, God, we ask you to do the same once again this morning. Lord, as your word is spoken, may it not be my word, may it not be my opinions, but, Lord, may your word go forth in the same creative power with which you brought all things into existence. Lord, would you transform our hearts? Would you sanctify us? Would you call those who are still in the bondage of sin, would you call them to life in Jesus Christ? And, Lord, would you increase our faith that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, that we would have endurance to finish the race before us, God, that you would put within our hearts a deep longing 
to see Christ and to see all things glorified with him, Lord, that we would not grow weary, that we would not be discouraged by the brokenness that we now experience. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you. Well, just before we uh, get into the message this morning, I, I must make a confession. Um, the elders brought to my attention, we had met, and, um, and they brought to my attention that I had uh, made a statement that was false last week, and so I commend them and you for being good Bereans. I said last week, asking the children what happened on Resurrection Sunday, and I had said that the temple curtain was torn, and uh, they reminded me that it was Good Friday that the temple curtain was torn. And, uh, and so I apologize for that, but I am encouraged that you're listening, uh, for one, and um, that you're being good Bereans. And I want to remind you to do that week by week. You test what I say against the Scriptures. And if you hear something or you think that you're hearing something that is not in accordance with the Scriptures, please uh, let me know. And uh, in that way, we sharpen one another, and we also maintain uh, the purity of our faith and doctrine according to the Scripture. So, so there it is. Uh, pastors uh, definitely have lots to learn as well. So thank you, guys. Um, so let's see. Can you guys, uh, can anyone name the, the, uh, either all five of the solas or the ones that we've looked at so far? Does anyone remember the first sola that we looked at, the first alone statement um, by faith alone? And then second, we looked at grace alone. We looked at last week, and uh, that's fine, though. So grace alone, and what was the other one we've looked at so far? Scripture alone. That's right. Um, scripture alone. And uh, so this morning, we're going to continue working through these statements um, and, uh, in light of God's faithfulness to restore His truth. These come out of, in some ways, the 16th century, where God worked to restore the gospel, uh, the understanding, and, and brought it to the masses. We, we do take it uh, for granted the fact that we have the Word of God at our disposal, every one of us. And that is a result of many lives, many hours of labor, um, many difficult conversations where people proclaimed these truths and, uh, and, and paid dearly for them. And so we're working our way through these what could be labeled as uh, kind of the, the essence of the Protestant gospel. When you talk about Protestants um, distinct from the Roman Catholic Church, at the very heart of this distinction is these statements that clarify what we mean by the Christian faith, what we mean by salvation. And, uh, and the alone part of it is very important, as we'll see again this morning in each one of these um, it's not that most religions deny faith even in Jesus Christ, but when you talk about faith alone, then people start to have issues. That's too exclusive. That's too narrow. Uh, when you talk about grace alone, well, what about my effort? What about my works? Grace alone would mean that I don't contribute to my salvation. And that's exactly what we are taught by the Scriptures. The Scripture alone seems too narrow, seems too exclusive, but that alone statement is crucial if we are to maintain the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in the same way, if you talk to those of other religions, um, chances are if you speak of Jesus as one of many 
options, they won't take issue. Uh, you could talk to the Hindu or the Muslim. Um, you could talk to uh, a, a Catholic professing person. If you talk of Jesus as one of many, uh, then most won't have an issue. But if you start to talk about Christ alone, then you are being narrow-minded. You are being too exclusive. And yet, this is the faith in which we stand if we are to be truly Christian. So, we're going to, from John's word here, um, to the Christians in the, in the first, and uh, well, specifically the writing in the first century, but we know that this word has been given to all the saints for all, for all remaining time. Um, there's really two, two primary uh, elements, you could say, to this doctrine of Christ alone. Uh, it is, there's two parts that you need to understand. First of all, when we talk about Christ alone, we're talking about his exclusive identity, the, the unique identity of Christ, which Christ alone has. No other uh, prophet, no other teacher, no other miracle worker can share in the identity that Christ claims. So he's alone in his exclusive identity. That's the first real component of understanding what we mean by Christ alone. And the second is the sufficient nature of his work, the sufficient nature of the work of Jesus, that his work alone is sufficient for our salvation. So we're going to look at those two parts, and uh, they are massive. So I know that we're just going to skim the surface, and hopefully you can... Uh, continue to, to study these things and, uh, and get into the Word and, and uh, see how they come from the Scriptures themselves. So let's start then with the unique identity of Jesus Christ. Um, clearly in First in John here, and this is, as I said, all throughout John's letters through his gospel, he continually reminds the Christians that if we are going to have any hope of eternal life, that if we're going to be Christian in its true sense, that we must profess Jesus as the Son of God, that we must profess Jesus as the one sent from God. And so he's talking about the identity of Jesus. Do you see that? It's, it's who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And so if we look at John's uh, work, and uh, even aside from the other writings of the, the New Testament, we can clearly find uh, an answer. And um, at the beginning of John's gospel, if you want to flip back just for a moment to John 1, we find John very clearly lay out for us who exactly are we talking about when we talk about Christ. And there's really no question here if this, uh, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witness Bible will, will start changing the translation but if we are sticking with the translation as it's been given, if, if we're going to be true to the Word of God, there's really no other way to understand what John is saying. He says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you read in, in 1 John 5, 
um, regarding the Son of God, and you wonder, what does John mean by that statement? Because we can quickly misunderstand a statement like Son of God. It seems to imply uh, that someone who has been created, someone who has a beginning. If we talk about my son, we know that at, at uh, you know, July 29th, he was born, um, conceived nine months prior. And, and so if we start to think of Christ in those terms, then we're going to misunderstand John because he's telling us here in John 1 that this son, this, this Messiah, was in fact with God in the beginning and was in fact God himself. So we talk about the identity of Christ, you must maintain the eternal nature of God, that he is uh, eternal, he shares all of the attributes of the Father, of the Spirit, and yet he is distinct in person. The, the gospel uh, message is, is, hinges on the reality of the triune God working redemption for us, and we saw that last week as well as we looked at his grace as the Father purposes and the Son accomplishes and the Spirit enables. So when we talk about Christ alone, He is alone of all of um, man, the one who is in fact God in the flesh. And this is what John believes. So don't misunderstand Son as creature. Um, We must first understand the identity of Jesus as eternal God same in essence of, as the Father, but unique in His person. You probably have heard the saying, no creed but Christ. And this kind of mentality today is an attempt to erase you know, denominational distinctions, to try to unify people around um, Jesus, the identity of who he is, and it, and it seems like a good thing on the surface. But as soon as you make uh, no creed but Christ, then you must ask the question, well, who is Christ? Is he the Jesus of the Muslims, who is simply a good teacher? Not quite as good as Muhammad, perhaps, but, you know, a good moral teacher. Is, are we talking about the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness, who is the brother of Satan, a fa- uh, who, Satan being a fallen angel, Jesus being uh, an unfallen angel who was also created? Are we talking about, um, I'm sorry, that's the Mormon view of Jesus the, as the brother of uh, Satan, um, or the Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus, that he's simply the archangel Michael, and, uh, and takes on flesh and then is exalted. There's, there's many different Jesuses. And so it's crucial that we, we understand who he is, his identity. Um, no creed but Christ really doesn't work because you must ask the question, who is Christ? And then you must say, okay, well, if we go to John 1, he is the word. He is the one who was with God. He was the one who is God. Well, then you've begun to make a confession of faith. And so don't, don't shy away from confessions, from, from works of history that uh, have confirmed these things. Uh, they can be very useful to us to uh, affirm what the scriptures are saying. Listen to the words. Uh, this is a, a little quote from Francis Schaeffer. And uh, he said this about the name Jesus, which I think we can all relate to in our day. He said, I have come to the point where when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic Jesus and his work, I listen carefully because 
I have with sorrow become more afraid of the word Jesus than, any, than, uh, than almost any other word in the modern world. The word is used as a con- contentless banner. There is no rational scriptural content by which to test it. Increasingly over the past few years, the word Jesus, separated from the content of scriptures, has been the enemy of the Jesus of history, the Jesus who died and rose and is coming again and who is the eternal Son of God. And we have been so familiar with this name Jesus that men will use it to curse, men will use it to, to affirm their own uh, views of salvation, of spirituality, that it actually can begin to work against the biblical Jesus So we must ask ourselves, who is he? And we see, according to John, that he is God. He is the eternal one. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Um, I don't know if any of you saw, they they did the remake of Ben-Hur, you know, the original Ben-Hur story. And it is um, the story of a a Jewish man who is uh, falsely accused and then put into a a slave ship where he's rowing and then uh, over the course of time he encounters Christ and I was disappointed I mean I I haven't actually read the whole book but in the movie the way they portrayed Jesus was more like a good moral teacher more like somebody who was just promoting a message of love and this is so common in our culture today that we have a view of Jesus but we must ask ourselves is it truly the Jesus of the Bible so John, uh, in, in, uh, in 1 John here, he is so, so adamant of that we understand this person of Jesus that he actually says that if we miss Christ, then we miss life. Because he says that it is in Christ that we have life from God. So, we might think, well, what does it really matter if, if someone has a little different view of Jesus, if the Muslims you know, have a little different Jesus and the Jehovah's Witness or the, the Catholics or the whoever. But John is saying that if we have the wrong Jesus, we actually forfeit eternal life. That if we have the wrong Messiah, that we have no advocate before the Father. So it's crucial. Um, you know, I could, I could say that I know somebody, um, you know, for example, I could say, I, I know Dave Bosma, and, uh, but then if I was to say, well, he, he moved here from France, and he's a vegetarian, and he, he's a bachelor, then you would say, no, 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 you, you really don't know Dave Bosma. That's not who he is. You might know him in name only, but you actually don't know anything about him. And so, because someone professes the name of Jesus, does not necessarily, they actually know him at all. So, we test all things against the Scripture and first and foremost, when we talk of Christ, the Son, we're talking of the Eternal One, um, God in flesh. Of all the things we think of, of Satan working against, it is the understanding of Jesus that Satan most passionately works against Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.3, if their gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
And so when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that the enemy of your souls wants to do is to keep you from seeing Christ, from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. He wants to keep you from beholding this eternal one. Because if you can get your eyes off of Christ, then you are not going to be sanctified. You are not going to have courage. You are not going to have hope because you've taken your eyes off of the author of our faith. As Christians, it is vital that we understand we're not merely holding to a common set of doctrines. We're not We're not gathering around a denominational name. We're not gathering around a political conviction. We're not even ultimately gathering around the Scripture as an end in itself. But rather, we are gathering around a person who is eternal, a being. We are gathering around a living God. And Jesus Christ is the one who came into the world to make God known. We must not forget that. That we can teach our children all of the right doctrines. We can teach them all the right answers to the questions. We can have perfect attendance in Sunday school on Sunday morning. Uh, we can, they can be baptized and, and they can share the gospel with their friends and they can go and give their life on the mission field. But if you miss the fact that we are talking about a person, then it is, as Paul would say, no better than a clanging cymbal or a clashing gong. If we miss that Christianity is about the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we have no Christianity at all. So remind your spouse of that. Remind one another of that. We are to seek Christ. The Scriptures are a means to know Christ. The scriptures are not the end in themselves, but they are the means through which we come to see Him and to know Him. They are the means in which we are to make Him known as we share the word of the gospel. So, who is this God? Uh, who is this Son? He is the Eternal One. He is the Creator. And in Christ, um, we find not only the fullness of God the Father, but Jesus is the one who takes upon himself humanity. And so this is also crucial if we're going to understand uh, the identity of Jesus, that you understand the incarnation, his humanity. It is in this one, um, of all the, the, you know, the, the great truths of our Christian faith, even these five solas that we're studying, um, it's in Christ that all of the rest hold together. And, and, and for you to understand that is, is so important. Um, J.I. Packer used the example of a, of a wheel, and uh, the wheel at the center has the hub, and the hub is what holds the spokes together and uh, keeps the wheel intact. And it is Christ, it is this doctrine of Christ alone, uh, the person of Jesus Christ that holds everything else together. It is like the sun in our solar system. And uh, maybe some of you kids enjoy learning about the planets and the stars. And you know that our own solar system at the center is the sun. And it is what holds things in orbit, that we are going around the sun. And it is the same for Christ, that we must keep him central 
in who he is and in his work if we are to be Christian in the true sense of the word. So there's a lot we could say uh, about his, um, the eternal nature of Jesus. One of my favorite pictures, because you, you would say, well, if Jesus is in fact the eternal one, uh, then we should find evidence for that throughout the Bible, right? It shouldn't just be a New Testament thing. There should be evidence from Genesis to Revelation of this eternal one at work among his people. And I think one of my favorite examples of Christ in the Old Testament is, you know the passage in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, that he saw the Lord, he says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and Isaiah beholds this great scene, this great vision where he looks into the throne room of God and there he sees God lifted up and the angels ascribing glory and holiness to our God. And even if you were to take a, a Jehovah's Witness to this passage and you ask them, who did Isaiah see? Who is he looking at? They would say, well, that's Jehovah God. Clearly, that's God. But do you know what John tells us about this very scene in uh, his gospel, John 12? And there's just so many of these. I wish we had time to, to go through a bunch of these examples, but we'll look at this one. John 12, and um, <clears throat> excuse me. In John 12, verse 36, John's recording Jesus had said and um, that Jesus leaves. And then he says in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So he's quoting Isaiah as the people harden their hearts against the message of Christ. And he's saying that's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. And that's exactly what was prophesied. But then listen to what Isaiah says in verse 41 of chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So John says that Isaiah prophesied regarding the response, the hardening of people's hearts against the word of Christ. And he said, he said these things, why? Because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? He saw Christ. He saw the glory of the eternal Son. And that is a breathtaking uh, glimpse into the reality of who Jesus is. We know in Hebrews 1, we're told that past times God spoke through his prophets and prophets and angels, but in these last times, he has spoken to us through his Son. So before we move on to the work of Christ, uh, we're thinking of the identity of Christ, um, 
you must understand the incarnation of Jesus because this is where I think oftentimes we, 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 we are tempted to go astray. What are we talking about? John, in, in the beginning of his gospel, tells us that Jesus, um, just jumping down a little bit in verse 14, the word, so this same word that he's talking about became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're talking about the eternal one, the creator, the sustainer, the second person of the triune God, putting aside his glory, all of his, all of his rights that he has as God, setting that aside and taking on human flesh, uh, entering into the womb of Mary, the virgin, and growing as an infant, as a child, as an adolescent, as a man, Jesus taking on flesh. And so we, we need to understand that when we talk of Jesus, he is the, he's the only person of the Trinity who became flesh. The Father did not, become, did not take on human flesh. The Spirit did not take on human flesh. It was the Son. And so this is part of the unique identity of Jesus, um, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, even in, in regards to our thinking of Christ currently, um, on the third day, the temple wasn't torn, uh, the curtain wasn't torn, he rose again, in body or in spirit, which one? Was it a physical resurrection or was it a spiritual resurrection only? Which one? Physical resurrection. So the Son who took on human flesh dies and He is glorified. He is raised by the power of the Spirit, by the work of the Father, and He now is in heaven as a man, as the God-man, still in glorified human flesh. And we don't know exactly what glorified human flesh is going to be like, but Jesus Christ is the eternal God, man. And, and so this is part of the unique identity of Christ when we are thinking about um, who is he, um, what has he done. And so we talk of the, 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 the big fancy word is the hypostatic union, that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, and that those two natures within Christ are not at war with one another, but they, they are there in perfect unity. And it's, it's mysterious and it's mind-boggling, but this is exactly what John is telling us. So this is who we talk, when we talk of Christ, we talk of the Son, we're talking of the Eternal One, the second person of the Trinity who clothed himself in human flesh, who was raised by the power of the Father, and who is now in heaven as the God-man. And we will see him as the God-man. When he comes, he will be... As, as, he is, uh, as he was when he was resurrected. And in that way, uh, the first fruits of a great harvest. Jesus said in John 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so he is the object of our faith. 
He is the, he is the, um, the very essence of what it means to be Christian, that we're not talking about a doctrine, we're talking about a person. And so then let us move on and we'll close with just looking for a few moments at the work of Christ, which is the second aspect of this Christ alone reality. First, his identity, the uniqueness of who he is, and then his work. Um, we're not going to have time to get through these all in any length, but really four key aspects of his work. And I know some of these are, are uh, you know, you've heard me talk of them before. I know that many of you know them, so we'll just go through them quickly before we close. But when we talk of the unique work of Christ, the sufficient work of Christ, uh, four aspects of that work, and and I'm sure this could be broken up a little differently. You could talk of other uh, aspects of the work of Christ. But as we look at the Scripture and um, we see what John tells us in 1 John 5, this work that ultimately results in our salvation, our eternal life, um, first of all, is that Christ stands as the new and better Adam. Christ stands as the new and better Adam. When you talk of the work of Christ, we're talking about uh, the failure of Adam to, to fulfill God's law, to walk in obedience, to image forth the, the triune God to the creation. And so when Jesus comes, taking on flesh, his work is to stand as a new and better Adam of a new and better creation. And uh, Paul, possibly more than any other writer of the New Testament, uh, reminds us of this. Um, we know that when Adam sinned, that even creation uh, was caught up in the, the suffering and the groaning that happens within creation because of its subjection, that man has brought on creation. The woman is also caught up in this groaning in the pains of childbirth. And yet Christ comes to reverse the curse and to restore uh, creation as God had intended. And this is part of his unique work that he alone accomplishes. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So you see what Paul is saying, just in the same way that Adam brings death upon humanity and curse upon creation and suffering upon us, so Christ brings life and restoration and healing. He stands as the new and better Adam. And part of our struggle with with this is that we don't see this work fully realized. We look out and we see decaying trees. We see sick animals. We look at our loved ones who, are, who are, have disease or sickness and we see broken homes and we see sin destroying nations. And you wonder, if Christ has accomplished this work as the new Adam, why don't we see it? And the answer that Peter gives is that God is patient towards us, not willing that his people would be unsaved, not willing that any would perish. He is, he's patient that the gospel would go forth and that we might repent and call upon Christ before the end comes and all things are made new. 
And so even the, the struggle that we see now should remind us of God's patience towards us and should comfort us and encourage us and motivate us to share the good news. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect of his work, um, this is one we don't often maybe think about, but that Christ in his work fulfills the prophets, uh, the prophecies regarding the Messiah, and Christ in his work obeys God's law and fulfills it. And this is unique to Christ alone, um, that he came and all of the prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah are fulfilled in Christ you read through a book like Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience who's concerned that the Jews understand Jesus is the Messiah, over and over and over, he, uh, Matthew says, um, this was to fulfill what was written. This was to fulfill what was written. This was to fulfill what was written about him. And, and the, the New Testament authors um, have checked, and they are telling us Jesus fulfills the prophecies. Now, there are some prophecies that refer to the glorified heavens and earth, which are yet to be fulfilled in Christ, and we trust those will be in due time. But over 300 prophecies regarding the Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfills them. And I know that we've talked about the aspect of Christ fulfilling the law as well, um, Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in his life, from the moment that Jesus was conceived, he begins fulfilling the law of God perfectly. That, that, and we've said this before too, that if all Jesus came to do was atone for our sin, to make payment for our debt, that he could have come on Good Friday and offered his life as a ransom, rose again on the third day and returned to heaven. But why 33 years of humility, of subjection? Why 33 years of Jesus setting aside his divinity, not depending on his, um, his own um, godness, if that's not really a word, but, but rather entrusting himself to the Father, uh, being empowered by the Spirit? Why 33 years? It was that, so that he might fulfill the fullness of God's law for us. And then we could also talk of the work of Christ as the perfect sacrifice. The very heart of the, of the Jewish worship was the temple and the sacrifices that would atone for sin. And we know that the blood of bulls and goats don't actually atone for sin, but they were actually pointing to Christ who would atone, who, who could and so the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus came to stand as the new and better Adam. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies regarding the Messiah. And Jesus came to offer his life as a ransom for many once for all. And so we think of all of these things in regards to the work of Christ, his great, unique work. And fourthly, then, an aspect of his work, we could think of Christ even now as our mediator, as our prophet, our priest, our king. 
Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There is no other one who can bring us to God, who can mediate our case before the Father. Christ alone can do this. There was no one else whose sacrifice is sufficient for our sin but Christ alone. And um, the, 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 in, in the 16th century, what, what the issue was is, is you understand the, the Roman Catholic view of Christ, it isn't that they don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ at all, but rather there is in heaven this treasury. And this treasury um, must be filled with grace for us to receive. And this is, this is the Catholic view. So Christ put merit into that treasury by his sacrifice, a lot of merit, a lot of grace. So it's not that they say Christ didn't contribute to our salvation or our grace that we need, but they'll also say that Mary, from the abundance of her obedience, also put grace and merit into this treasury, and that the saints, from the abundance of their merit, also put merit into this treasury, and that the pope and the priests, they manage this treasury, and so as you pay penance, as you confess, as you partake of the Lord's table, then they can minister to you this grace from this treasury in heaven. So when we talk of Christ alone, what we are saying is that he is unique in his identity, which even the Catholic Church agrees on the identity of Christ. But when we talk of the work of Christ, it is his merit, his grace, his work alone that can impart to us grace. And it is a grace not that we earn or that we deserve, but that is freely given because of the, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And so that in a, I guess a large nutshell, is this great reality of Christ alone. And so may we heed the warnings of the prophets, may we heed the words of a man like John on his in his last days, admonishing the Christians not to depart from this teaching, not to depart from the Son, but to hold fast the testimony that we might have eternal life. And so I urge you to continue to seek our Lord and our Savior. And if you're not here this morning, having looked upon Christ, having called upon Him, then ask the Father to reveal the Son to your heart. Ask Him to show you the glory of Christ that you would be changed by Him. And may we press on until we, with the saints, see Him coming on the clouds. So let us pray and we will we'll wrap up. Lord God, I know that I am talking of things which I know so little. And Lord God, that we, we struggle because, Lord, we are professing a faith that is by and large unseen, Lord, that we have not seen Christ, that we have not heard your audible voice as maybe we long to do, Lord. And, and yet we're thankful for the provisions that you've given, the, the spirit that you have given, Lord, that would 
Show us Christ would take from him and give to us. Lord, we thank you for your word that makes Christ known. We thank you for your church that we can encourage one another and that we can partake of the, the physical elements, Lord, of the, the of baptism, of communion. And Lord, I just ask for your help and your mercy as we go from here. Lord, hold us fast. Help us, give us a hunger and thirst to see Christ, to keep him central. And uh, Lord, I pray for those who have been deceived. We think of even the Mormon church here in town. We think of the Jehovah's Witness here in town, Lord. We think of Muslim communities, those who have a false Christ, a false sense of hope. Lord, would you break in uh, with your word, give us boldness to share. We pray for the Catholic church, Lord, and Lord, just the mingling of man's work and your great work. Father, would they renounce any effort on our part to atone for sin and look to Christ alone. Um, Lord, give us humility now and uh, strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.